Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is November the 3rd, 2017. This is episode 2110, 2110 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Friday. It's time for Expert Council Show. I've got a great lineup for the council today. Let me tell you what we're going to be talking about. I have choosing material uh, for building custom knife scales and building custom knife scales with Patrick Rorman. I have building a profitable small-scale farm and kind of not getting entangled with, well, is it permaculture? Is it a farm? You know, and is this a hobby? Is this like, this is the part, if you want to break it off for a profit, how you got to do it right with Darby Simpson. We have a question on what public benefit corporations are, and is it a marketing gimmick? Is it a real thing for John Pugliano? We have making the move from vegetarian to beef eater with Gary Collins and anything that you need to know if you've been a long-time vegetarian and decided, yeah, I'm ready for some meat. Uh, next up, how to calculate the size of a spillway relative to catchment and everything else in the equation with a permaculture laureate. I guess I just invented a thing. Permaculture laureate Jeff Lawton. Uh, battery banks on the go and hydrogen fears dispelled with Stephen Harris and me, Jack Spierko, on how we here at Nine Mile Farm handle eggs from uh, ducks, chickens, and quail. We don't have chickens anymore, but we did it one time. Uh, and commercial processing versus for our personal consumption. Do we think, do things any differently with that? All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get into it, let's go ahead and take a look at the year in history. We have finally made it through the year of four emperors. And dear friends, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. If you were like, holy crap, not anytime soon, but if you think the year of four emperors is like a ridiculous thing, even though it's a thing, Somewhere in the future, we're going to have dun, 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 the year of five. Yes, five. No, I'm not kidding. No shit. The year of five emperors is a thing, but it's a long way off. We now have about 10 years of stability under Vespian. It's the year 70 AD, and we're about to deal with the Siege of Jerusalem, contributed by David Verne. Now that the Civil War is over and the year four emperors is done, Romans can uh, focus on dealing with the Jewish revolt. Vespian's son, Titus, has been given the task of ending the revolt. In late April, Titus reaches Jerusalem with 70,000 soldiers. Since it is a few days after Passover, the city is filled with a reported 1.1 million people, but this number is seen as way too large by modern historians. With food supplies already stretched thin, the zealots burn the grain storage, thinking this would harden the defenders and prevent surrender to Romans. Really? I'll just continue. Jerusalem was surrounded by three walls, each defending an expansion of the city. On May 10th, the Romans began bombarding the third wall with ballistics, which looks like giant crossbows that were capable of firing 100-pound stones. On May 24th, the Romans breached the wall after a week managed to secure the second wall. After vicious street fighting, they are unable to take the first wall. After Jewish raiding parties burn the Roman siege towers. Titus proposes, proposes, postpones the assault and takes three days to completely encircle the city with five miles of trench and wall. After a surprise raid, the Romans take the uh, Anatonia Fortress, which gave them a route to attack the temple wall. In August, the final assault began, and even though Titus had ordered the temple to be spared, a fire started and it was destroyed. The only wall, the only the west wall was still standing. 
By September, Jerusalem was taken and Roman uh, control over Judea was reestablished. But there were two mountain fortresses that will stand another few years. My take by David Verne. One of the outcomes of the revolt was the despair of Jews and Christians. As they fled the revolt, they settled in many cities throughout the empire. For the Jews, this was the start of a rabbinic period, where the Jews adapted their religion to work without the temple. Many Christians had fled after Jerusalem was first seized by the rebels and saw the revolt as a fulfillment of several prophecies Jesus gave before he died. Christianity was already present in small pockets throughout the empire, and this further spread the new religion. And the religions will have a marked effect on the world, and the people will as well. I think the uptake is from here that a lot of times we see these conflicts, and we don't think about that little word right there, dispora. Well, it's a dispora. It's a dispersal. Yeah, basically, it's the, the, the dividing up and moving and separating of a population that was generally in a small area over a large area. That can be for good. That can be for, eh, I don't know, okay, sort of, kind of. And that can be for bad. You just don't know, depending on who they are, where they go, and what happens when they get there. And this is something that we should think about every time we go blowing something up. The diaspora of a population of people. Because some of them, no matter what you think, are going to end up here. And some of them are going to end up in other places where we have allies, where we have people that are not so much our friends, etc., But the big thing is we're, dis we're, dis we're dispersing a group of people and not letting them evolve under their own choices and decisions. And we're forcing them into other societies. And we're forcing other societies to accept them. And I don't know, the prime directive from Star Trek, not permaculture, but from Star Trek, you know, springs to mind. If you don't know what that is, look it up. Uh, I think it's a lesson for us in the modern day. With that, let's... Uh, Let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show and uh, start out with our first question. This question is for Patrick Rohrman on doing your own custom scales for your own knives with something like a knife kit's frame, but then you know taking complete responsibility for the scales. Patrick, take it away, man. Hey, guys. Patrick with MT Knives coming to you today with today's expert counsel question of the week. Uh, today's question comes from JR. Patrick. What tips or resources can you provide for making custom scales for a knife kit? Details. Looking at a sport hunter from knifekits.com, and I want to put on wooden scales, ironwood, cocobolo, or just straight American hickory. Do I source blocks that are .25 or 1.25 in thickness? I like the handle with a palm swell. So is, so, so is it just sanding until you get the fill you want? Do I shape with 60 grit? Once I have the shape, what grit, grit steps do I take from there? Thanks. Well, there's about 20 questions here. <laughs> I'll just take them from the top. So, um, first of all, uh, looking at Sports Hunter, I want to put wooden scales, ironwood, cocobolo, or just straight American hickory. Um, there's lots of sites that provide wood scales. Knife kits, uh, I, I believe has, uh, all three of those. Maybe, maybe not the hickory. And the best thing is, I, I would, I would suggest buying the knife, uh, buying knife scales and not buying a block of wood. Technically, it's cheaper to buy the wood and make the scales yourself, but unless you got a pretty good bandsaw where you want to try to split those scales, 
Sometimes that can be challenging, splitting those blocks and then getting them flat. So it's easier just to have the scales already pre-cut and sand it flat. I personally, uh, also on the thickness of your scales, it depends how thick your tang going to be. Is your tang going to be a quarter inch? How big is your hands? All these things uh, factor into how thick you want your scales. A lot of times I'll use uh, 3 sixteenths or uh, depends on, you know, what, what I'm doing. Quarter inch. I don't, quarter inch is uh, plenty to work with for most cases. Sometimes I like to remove as little material as possible. And sometimes that's kind of caught me, uh, caught me and, you know, not been so good. So one thing is you can always take more away, but you, it's hard to add back. So if you like a handle with a palm swell, you're going to need more material. Um, so is it just sanding to get the feel you want? Yep, pretty much. Do I shave with 60 grit? Well, that's, uh, depends, depends on what you want to do. Um, I typically will shape with, uh, anywhere from 36 to 80 grit and depends on, you know, what, what grinder you're using. The more you do it, uh, I, when I'm shaping a handle, I've got my grinder, two horsepower grinder running a hundred percent. And it's flat, you know, getting with it. And you throw on some 50 grit and you make quick work of it. Um, also, you can screw a knife up really quick. So that's going to be based on your skill level, how fast you want to go, how low of grit you're comfortable with removing material with. Once you have it shaped, what grit, uh, grit steps do I take from there? You know, that, that's going to depend on the wood. It's going to depend on a lot of things, um, but typically speaking, you don't want to skip too many grits where you're going to be leaving scratches that you're not going to see until you get to that final polish. Um, the biggest mistake a lot of people make is they leave scratches in some of the lower grits and they start progressing up through the grits and they think that it's going to come out and you get that handle all finished up and that scratch is still there. So... Um, just like with sharpening, you want to make sure that you stay on your grits until you get the scratches out before you progress on. So I hope this answers your question, JR. Thank you for your question. If uh, any of you guys have any other questions out there, be sure to send them to Jack, and uh, I'll look forward to hearing them and answering them for you. Once again, this has been Patrick Rohrman with MT Knives, reminding you to stay beyond razor sharp. Okay, understanding that Patrick knows a shitload more about knives uh, and knife making than I do. I do have one thing I would, I don't know that I would say differently, but I would at least add as a consideration here uh, for JR. If you're Patrick Rorman and you're making a run of custom knives and you're going to do a hundred knives that are all going to have a, 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 a dark myrtle handle, uh, buying scales, you gotta, you gotta. Um, I absolutely agree with what Patrick said. If you were going to buy handle material, I would buy pre-cut scales of the thickness necessary to do whatever you want to do um, rather than buy a block of wood and try cutting scales out of it. I, I, I agree with that because you're buying it anyway, um, and it, they're not that expensive. They just aren't. However, what this made me do was think back to a couple weeks ago when Patrick asked, answered a question 
about making knives from like steel from a leaf spring or something like that. And, and Patrick and I kind of agreed on that. Like once you get really good at it, the most expensive thing in that knife is your time, not the steel. And if you're going to spend, you know, weeks on a knife, if you're a hobbyist, maybe, and you, you've gotten good enough, you know something good's going to come out the other end. If it's going to be a knife that you want to give to somebody that you want them to have to hand down to their kids or something, it makes sense to go out and get, you know, some good quality, you know, tool steel or some XHP or something like that. And I kind of agree with that. Like, it's fine for, you know, making knives to learn the skill and whatever, or a knife that's just a, I don't know, a knife that's going to live out in the barn and be for slicing stuff off the, you know, whatever. But if you're going to make a knife that you're really going to put some time into, buy the steel. I do think for the hobbyist, one of the best skills you can develop, though, is to be able to look at a branch out of a pecan tree or a locust tree or a walnut tree and say, I have to prune that branch. I'm going to use that to make scales. And I'll tell you why. Especially if you're going to be a kit knife maker. And I think most hobbyists are going to be kit knife makers. They're not going to be forging their own steel. They're going to be buying a frame and finishing a frame. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I kind of feel like a lot of, a lot of hobbyist guys that are making one or two knives a month. And it's, it's a thing that, You know, you come home from work and you go out in the shop and you work on that handle a little bit and, and that's the main part of what you're doing. That that puts your signature on something that otherwise pretty much isn't off the shelf snap together kit. Now you need, like Patrick said, good bandsaw, good tools, you know, getting that perfectly flat level, you know, plain surface and all. But it's not that difficult. And if it's free material, you can play with it until, like, you know, you get plenty of wood for free. And you can play with that until you get it the way you want it. Now, the other side of that is a lot of the stuff like knifekits.com sells for, like, their scale material, like, you know, some of their presentation grade stuff and all. It's hard to find something with that kind of character in it. But there's a lot of really awesome wood out there that can be just had for next to nothing. So I think learning to make scales, if I was going to go into hobby knife making, um, That's the path I would probably take. Uh, kit frame and building my own scales uh, from various different things. Next up, I have a kind of complicated question for Darby Simpson on building a profitable homestead permaculture farm. Permaculture farm homestead. Not really sure what we're looking to do here, I think, is the problem. Darby, can we get some clarity on this? Hey there, everyone. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer another question for the TSP Expert Council. This week, I've got a question from Joe, and I'm actually just going to read you Joe's email because there is a ton of stuff going on here. So let's get into it. How do I decide where to start with a homestead, permaculture property, or farm? I want to develop my property to be sustainable, regenerative, profitable farm. I also want to grow a large amount of my own food. I have 72 acres of hilly ground. About half of it is wooded, half is poor pasture, and some is too steep to use. I need to design it. Uh, it's used before I make mistakes with water line and fizz placement. I know I have some erosion issues. I don't know if I should use key line, swales, or just leave that area. I would also like to plant the majority of my own feed. We'll circle back to that one, Joe. My goal is to retire early, about 10 years from now at age 55, and use farm income as at least part of a uh, part-time income. I need to know if I should hire a permaculture designer or work on farming first. I think uh, those kind of dovetail in into one another, Joe, but again, we'll circle back to that. 
I currently work 50 to 60 hours a week at a job I mostly enjoy. I then come home and tend to the pigs and chickens. We also sell at a farmer's market. As much as I would like to get a PDC, there are only so many hours in a day. I need to use my spare time to develop marketing skills. Thank you, Jack, for the excellent podcast, and thanks to all the expert panel for their time and advice, Joe. Okay, Joe, um, I you know let, let me start off by saying, I mean, for those of you that don't know me, I am not a PDC guy. I do not have a PDC. I don't intend to ever get a PDC. What I am is a full-time farmer who has proven uh, through following instruction from guys like Greg Judy and Joel Salton and Cody Holmes and others that farming full-time in a regenerative manner while providing an income for a family of four is entirely possible. It is a hell of a lot of hard work. It's really tough, but it can be done. Um, as as far as, as whether or not you you know, need to decide with a homestead, permaculture property, or farm. Joe, the biggest thing I can tell you, and this is what I tell people uh, who sit in my workshop, is you have to very quickly decide from a personal context standpoint what's going to be for profit and what's going to be for your personal enjoyment or, or homesteading. And you've got to divide those and put them into two completely different categories. So if you enjoy growing and canning tomatoes – and you enjoy watching some laying hens run around and act like laying hens and you enjoy eating eggs, but you're not going to try and sell those things. Well, those are a homesteading thing, and hopefully homesteading things go well, but if they don't, you shrug your shoulders because it doesn't have any bearing on the mortgage. Now, if raising 100% grass-fed beef cattle is, is going to be a part of your income. Well, then you treat it as such. You treat it as a professional business. You get training. You learn what to do and what not to do. You, you read. You study. You go to workshops. You go to conferences. You talk with other producers, and you treat it like any other profession. And, and when I say you treat it like any other profession, you get the training you need to learn how to do 100% grass-fed cattle properly. Um, so I, I, th I think that you first need to decide what is it you want to farm and, and be profitable with. Now, whether or not you need to hire a permaculture designer, there's probably some pretty good designers out there that could give you a real leg up on appropriate use for certain areas of your farm. And, and I want to be careful here because I, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing permaculture. I'm not. I, there's a lot about permaculture that I love. I think there's a lot of what I do that is very permaculture in nature. And I'll, I'll again, I'll reference cattle. I mean, if that's not chop and drop and, and building soil, then, you know, I, I don't, I guess I don't understand what permaculture is, but cattle are a phenomenal way to build soil. Anyhow, um, you know, whether or not you need to hire a permaculture designer to come in and help you, eh, maybe. If you're talking about fence and water and, and areas to, to not use or, or use sparingly, I mean, someone like myself or any other grazier out there can, can help you with that. Do I think you need a PDC? No, I absolutely don't. The reason I say that is while I think there are a lot of things that I, as a farmer, can look at within permaculture and draw out of it and apply bits and pieces to my farm. I honestly have not seen very many examples, and by very many, I mean more than one, 
and I'll reference Mark Shepard, I've not seen too many, you know, quote unquote permaculture, end quote, farms that are profitable. Um, I think Ben Falk would probably be the ne- next best example I could think of, but I've not seen Ben's place. I've not been there. Um, but from what I've seen of, of Ben on social media and, and listening to Ben, I, I think that he's probably someone I'd put in that category. I think Ben demonstrates that, that it is very possible to do things in a truly permaculture way and make a profit. But in, in terms of, you know, from my perspective, providing an income for a family of four with really no outside help to speak of, very, very little outside help, um, you know, I think it's possible to do it farming. I've just not seen examples like that from permaculture. I don't think you need a PDC to, to do what you're talking about doing here, which is basically uh, complementing your retirement with some income from the farm. Um, that's that's kind of my, my two cents on do you need a PDC? And I, for me, the answer is no, absolutely you do not. Do I think it would hurt? No, I don't think it would hurt. But you're talking about there's only so many hours in a day and you really need to develop marketing skills. Um, you know, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. I just I don't know of really marketing be a, being a big facet of, of permaculture. Marketing is something I teach a lot on. Uh, I think there are some other guys that, that do really well teaching on marketing as well. Uh, Cody Holmes being one of them. But, you know, I don't think that a PDC is going to help you with that. Um and I don't think that you necessarily need a PDC designer to come in and help you figure out where to put buried water and fence and, and where not to do that. Again, someone might be able to help, but I don't think it's essential. So, you know, those, those are those are some of my my big takeaways here, Joe, from from your email. Um, I again, I think you really you need you need to sit down and and figure out what is it you want to focus on doing, uh, you know, as a farm business. Now, something you mentioned here was you want to plant the majority of your own feed. And you are, you already said there are only so many hours in a day. Now, what I'm going to tell you, Joe, is, I mean, you're, 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 you're listening to a guy that in the previous two weeks in a span of 13 days pushed nearly 150 hours. Now, it's not like that all the time. That's kind of the extreme. There are windows where it just is what it is, and that's how many hours you put in. Um, you know, like on Labor Day, which is a holiday, I worked about 10 hours, and that was the shortest day I had in a in a two-week span. Um, to think about then growing all of my own feed on top of that is the proverbial straw that will break the camel's back. So, if you're talking about you want to do a small scale beef and or sheep operation and you want to make some hay, well, that's one thing. But if you're talking about you want to grow the grain for your pigs and chickens, uh, you know, I know guys that have done that. Um, I don't know any of them that are still in business. Uh, they worked themselves to death and they burned out. You've got to focus on a couple of things. I mean, I tell most most students in my my workshop. Uh, that Diego Footer and I do, you're looking at like two to four enterprises. That's about all you can, you can handle, uh, particularly if you're doing all this on your own. So I run a pastured poultry enterprise, I run a beef enterprise, I run a pig enterprise, 
And, you know, then, uh, you know, I, I do some, some teaching and consulting on the side. That's a very, very, very small part of my income, uh, sub 5%. So, but it's still kind of, it's kind of an, an income stream. It's an enterprise. And it, I tell you what, it's all I can do just to, to keep up with that stuff. It's really difficult to balance things. I don't know if you have kids. I don't know if you're married. You, you didn't mention those things, but I mean, there is only so much that one man can do. I don't know what kind of scale you're looking at. I don't know if you're pro or anti-employees. There's a whole host of things here that could change the conversation. All I can do is answer your question based on the information you provided. And hopefully, Joe, I've done that. Hopefully, I've given you some things to think about. Um, if you want to learn about marketing, I really would encourage you to check out the Grass-Fed Life podcast. Uh, it's, a, it's a podcast that Diego Footer and I do every week. It's got its own feed now in iTunes. You can just look up Grass-Fed Life, and you'll find it. You can also find it at Diego's website, which is permaculturevoices.com. There are probably no less than 10 or 12 one- to one-and-a-half-hour podcasts on marketing. Uh, you can also, if you want, <clears throat> purchase a uh, the, the Broadacre package from PB3, which uh, Uncle Jack is, is in there talking about ducks, uh, Grant Schultz, uh, Darren Doherty, Greg Judy. I think Diego sells that package for 99 bucks. The reason I mentioned that is because I personally gave about a three and a half hour presentation on marketing. So I think right now, based on what you're telling me, that you need to develop marketing skills, you're doing farmer's markets, that you'd probably be better off uh, you know, to, to spend a few bucks on some training for marketing and, and please understand, I don't get a dime from that. That's, that's all Diego. Um, I'm not telling you to do that so that you can, you know, put a buck in my pocket. It doesn't. I'm just telling you there's a resource out there that's pretty daggone inexpensive, um, which would help you learn a whole lot about marketing. And oh, by the way, there's like, you know, seven hours on, on grazing, from Greg Judy, who is master Yoda when it comes to grazing cattle. And given your age, uh, you and I are not too too far apart in age. I, <clears throat> I hope that cattle are on your radar. If you've got the infrastructure in place, the bigger the animal, the easier they are to manage and handle. And as we get older, things like pasture and poultry become pretty daggone labor-intensive and Things like, you know, cattle and pigs are pretty easy to manage with some fence. So anyway, just a resource for you to consider there, Joe. Check out the podcast. Uh, for anyone else interested in learning about me, check out DarbySimpson.com. I'm running long here, so I'm going to cut this off. But, Joe, if you need more help, you need more advice, by all means, feel free to reach out to me. I'll try and help direct you as best I can. As always, everyone, have a wonderful weekend. Keep the uh, questions coming in. Really love answering these for you. Take care. Um, I'm going to add to this with something that might surprise a lot of people. I think, unless you're very personally disciplined, that if your primary goal is to start up a farm for profit, it might be, note the word might, it might be that one of the worst decisions you could make is taking a PDC. Now, personally, I think that if you have the time and the money, everybody should take a PDC. I think it changes your worldview. I think it opens you up to a lot of things with pattern recognition, understanding climates, understanding zoning, understanding earthworks, etc. But in the end, if what you want to do is put, put food on the table of other people 
in a profitable yet sustainable manner, it isn't that hard. And I, I would tell you that I think it would be better to establish a profitable farm piece, something that's working, that's functioning. And, and, and the, the, the guy asked the question, I need to learn marketing. Yes, you do. It's the hardest thing for farmers. It's the number one reason they fail. You can produce food, but you got to get it to, to a market that will pay what it's worth for it. And, 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 and developing a market, and if you can pass your, let's say, chickens and, and, and pigs and make money, you know, if you can find time during that off-season to take a permaculture design course, great. And it may help you do some things and what have you. And permaculture actually absolutely will scale commercial. The problem is that a lot of people that don't understand commercial scale then try to go take a permaculture design course or learn about permaculture and try to scale permaculture to commercial instead of permaculturing commercial, if that makes sense. In other words, when you look at something like what Jeff Lawton did on one of his projects in Jordan, putting in, I think it was like a 16-acre permaculture farm, it doesn't lay out or look that much different than a commercial farm. You don't see long, sweeping, bending swales. He did swale-like features that are straight-line paths to enable automated harvesting. And then the irrigation works more efficiently because of that. An interplanting of leguminous species, sure, but it doesn't look like my backyard permaculture food forest, which would be terrible for commercial production. If you look at what like Mark Shepard does, we find a key line point in the land, and we do a large swale off of that, and then we don't really worry about these permeations in the landfall and the additional points of the silvopasture swelling, which are basically scratches in the ground, are done at equidistance from that key line with some little corrections made for what we call drive-through ponds. But what that does is if we put them at a certain distance and that farmer is doing hay, he can come down with his combine on one side, flip around, come back the other, and two passes, you're done. And there's no backing up and moving around. It's set up for that equipment to work. Or there's enough room in there that if we were to interplant it with something like aronia and elderberry within the inner swell of the silvopasture model, that a straddle harvester can come right through there and do it. Now, that's very large scale. But see, that's permaculturing commercial. That's not trying to scale permaculture to commercial. I know that sounds like doublespeak, but if you really think about what I'm saying here, that that, that, that is exactly how you... You have to think... Major efficiency in a commercial operation, even a small one. If you look at our duck operation, it looks very haphazard unless you actually look at it. It's extremely efficiently managed. There's three gates. You open one gate, they have that paddock. They're fed in one place. They're, they're confined in one place at night. A collection is done in one place. They're fed in one place. They get their water in one place. But then they're rotated through the pasture, which is a very similar model in a different way as to what Darby does with cattle. They move pasture to pasture to pasture. They don't go home to one place. But they are moved through in an efficient manner. It has to be efficient. With my food forest, I don't care if I wander around. I got some blackberries there today and some apples there today. That's fine. 
You want to see how to do an orchard right in a, in a permaculture way for commercial use? Look at the Miracle Orchard by, uh, uh, what's his name, St Stefan Sobekayak. Right? Everything's in rows. It's still permaculture. He uses plastic, but it's still permaculture. Drip irrigation, interplanting of legumes and species, but everything's zoned so that the fruit that's harvestable all is in the same place at the same time. And, and, and the, the, that all can be done and actually is done better with the knowledge of a PDC. But if you don't have that in your head and you start from the save the world attitude that you come out of a PDC with if you come out of it without discipline, then you can actually screw a lot of things up and make a lot of errors. And you get too scattered because you want to incorporate all these design elements. When I've learned through trial and error and trying to create an education site where I've done more than I should have, more diversity of systems than I should have, just so I had the systems – That that even was a mistake, even though it's so a student can come look at it. Well, this is how this works. So, like, it did teach us what works best here. But what we should have said is, what are the best three or four design methodologies here and done only them until they could give us everything they could give us by themselves and then think about something else? And coming straight at it with no background in farming and just a permaculture education And even a limited understanding from that, you can actually, I think you'd be better off getting Joel Salins to pastor poultry profits and learning how to do that. I really do. That's nothing against permaculture. It's just they're different places for the different utilizations of different types of knowledge and methodologies. And there's a big difference between producing 20,000 chickens and producing a couple dozen eggs or even a couple hundred dozen eggs. They're, they're very different things. And you have to think about them differently. All right. Anyway, uh, definitely agree with everything Darby had to say on that. Uh, next up, I have a question for John Pugliano on public benefit corporations. Hello, TSP listeners. Today our financial question comes from Colin. And Colin asks me to explain what a public benefit corporation is and how it could be applied to some of the businesses we talk about on the Survival Podcast. The reason Colin is asking about this is because he was listening to an interview from someone that works at Kickstarter, and they mentioned that Kickstarter was a public benefit corporation, and that instead of having a fiduciary responsibility to their investors, that Kickstarter has a responsibility to uphold a charter. And Colin is wondering if something like a public benefit corporation could be applied to perma-ethos-type business models or other type of permaculture-based businesses. Well, I wanted to answer Colin's question because recently over at the Survival Podcast Facebook forum, there was some discussion about the Boy Scouts of America and some of the changes that are happening over there. And I don't remember the exact context of the statement, but I think someone posted something to the effect of, you know, the Boy Scouts were a nonprofit organization, so they had a good mission. And Jack Spierko's response to that was that the CEO of the Boy Scouts of America made in excess of a million dollars a year in compensation. And so I think the point that Jack was trying to make was that just because profits aren't being generated and shared with shareholders doesn't mean that the money is necessarily going to a good purpose. The money could be going to line the pockets of key executives. Now, my point here is not to criticize highly compensated CEOs. Before I answer Colin's question and explain what a public benefit corporation is, I kind of wanted to point out that when I deal with businesses or organizations, I seldom am concerned with the way that the corporation itself is structured. 
and I think this is a pretty good idea for most people, the way we live our lives. We shouldn't be concerned whether the guy that we're doing business with is chartered as an S corporation or a C corp or a limited liability company or whether they're a nonprofit. As wise consumers, we should be engaging with companies and organizations that are providing us value for what we're exchanging with them. If, if we buy a service or we donate to an organization, regardless of how they're structured, we should feel that we're getting adequate compensation for the money that exchanges hands. I don't know. This might be a little bit too wonkish, but I did want to point this out. So when I'm dealing with someone, I don't care how they make their money. I judge it based on the quality of the service or the product that they provide. And so about the only time that I would care if an organization was a nonprofit would be if I was making a charitable contribution and I wanted it to be tax deductible. So in that case, I would want to make sure that the organization was a 501c3 so that any money that I contributed to that organization, I could get a tax break for. But other than that, I don't care how the organization is organized. I care about the results that they achieve. So back to Colin's question. What is a public benefit corporation? Well, it's just a filing status with the IRS. An organization that's chartered as a public benefit corporation simply means that that corporation will be taxed on any profits that they generate, but that they're also being organized for some type of public benefit. And here's where I have a little bit of problem with this concept of a public benefit. What rubs me the wrong way is that the assumption is that a regular for-profit business is not providing a public benefit. But my thought is every profitable business is obviously providing a public benefit or otherwise they would be out of business. So back to special benefit corporations. What makes them so different? Well, oftentimes you'll find them directly partnerships with government or some type of a municipality and it's likely granted some type of monopoly over a particular service, like hauling trash, or it could be the utility that provides a rural community with electricity. But it doesn't have to be tied to a particular government agency. It could be like Kickstarter. Loosely defined, you could say that the Federal Reserve was a public benefit corporation. In any case, in my opinion, I don't think we should be worried about whether an organization is chartered as a for-profit or a not-for-profit because both organizations can do good or evil. It all depends on the people in that organization. So back to Colin's original question. Could a public benefit corporation be applied to something like permaethos or some other type of permaculture-based business? Absolutely, it could be applied to those things. But my personal opinion is, in the big scheme picture of things, I don't see how it would matter. Irregardless of what type of organization is being established, the business model has to provide quality products and services that consumers are willing to purchase, and they've got to be purchased at a high enough price that that organization earns some type of a profit. It doesn't matter how that profit is distributed. The key point is that a profit has to be generated. And I think that whenever we're starting any type of business, that's what we need to focus on. That's the key. That's really the only thing that matters, whether it's permaethos, permaculture, or just greedy old capitalism. Jack, please chime in. Tell us what you think. Hey, Colin, thanks for your question. If you'd like to hear more about my opinions on the stock market or building wealth, please check out the Wealthsteading Podcast. For the Expert Council, this is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth. First, let me say, John, John was spot on about uh, my 
point in bringing up that the CEO of the Boy Scouts makes well, and it's close to $2 million a year, and by the way, has a company provided jet. I don't begrudge any CEO from being highly compensated if his company is highly profitable. I do begrudge the bullshit that is in people's heads that just because a company's a non-profit, it's made up by a bunch of little angels that are out there doing everything for free. Uh, Boy Scouts of America, to me, is actually one of the more predatory non-profit corporations in the United States uh, because they get almost 100% of their labor is volunteer labor in addition to the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars that are, you know, Uh, pay to them. They, they have a very, very small payroll and a lot of money come in because most of their work is done for free. And then they come down and say stupid shit like Boy Scouts aren't allowed to throw water balloons at each other or have water gun fights. That's why I brought that up there. It's not really germane to this other than I wanted to clarify my position. And again, I don't actually have a problem with the the CEO of a nonprofit, depending on how it's run and what it does and are they clear about what they do making a good salary for the work that they do. You want good people to do good work, you got to pay them good money. And if you're running a large-scale nonprofit, a national, global nonprofit, you know you need somebody of the caliber that's probably going to cost you that much money. But this, uh, this social justice warrior nonsense belief system that like, well, it's a nonprofit, so it's good, it's just stupid. And that's where the comment I was responding to came from. Well, they have to be good because they're a nonprofit. They're not evil like Monsanto. Okay, we'll get to that in a second. So public benefit corporation, what would my add-on be to this? My add-on to this would be it's not quite as simple as John makes it out. Um, though I agree with his, his contention that I don't really care what you are when I choose to, do, choose to do business with you. I care what you do. This is where it really comes down to the fiduciary thing. So let's say that I had a company called uh, All Things Corporation, And we were a, a, a standard C corporation. And John Pugliano was one of multiple shareholders in that company. It doesn't have to be public for there to be multiple shareholders. We could just be a, a privately held C corporation. We could have 20 or 30 or 40 or 100 shareholders in this company. It all depends. And uh, let's say that John wasn't the fine, upstanding man that he is, that he was more of uh, a Monsanto-type sleazeball, which he's not, of course, and that I was like this moral person in this company. I was also a shareholder and a, a significant shareholder where I acted, could act on the capacity as the company as an owner, and I had managerial uh, roles in the company. And something came to my attention that I found to be unethical and felt that it should be disclosed to the market. We were doing activity A. Uh, we've corrected that, but that's wrong, and we, we, we shouldn't have done that. Or whatever. Doesn't even matter what it is. Something like that. Well, in a standard corporation, especially if I was acting as, like, let's say, our chief financial officer when I did that, the question would be, was there a legal requirement for me to disclose the information? Would it have been illegal for me not to disclose it? And if the answer is no, then the next question is, did taking that action, was it harmful to the company? Can you make a case that the company was harmed by that action? And if the answer to the fact, no, I did not have a legal requirement, and yes, it was harmful, you could say that I abdicated my legal responsibility as the company's fiduciary, that I should have refrained from the moral action to the benefit of the company itself. Now, How often does this come into play? Not a huge amount, but there is a reasonable argument to be made 
that John and the other shareholders of that company could sue me because I did not act in the company's best interest, even though I was acting in the best interest of the most people because I wasn't legally required to do it. A real-world example right now. They're trying to lower the repatriation cost to 5% for money from overseas. Apple has $80 billion plus in China. Apple does not want their $80 billion in China, but China treats their money better than we do. So they keep it there. And they've been earning it there because it's better kept, it's better treated earned there. Now, once it's earned, they'd actually rather have it here. Well, our government and their genius decided what we'll do is we'll prevent that evil behavior of making money overseas and then repatriating it, and we'll tax it at 40%. So you already chased the corporation's activity out of the country with high corporate taxes. Now you're going to tax them even higher than the corporate tax to bring the money home. Okay, let's say that Apple decided in the best interests of America, that $80 billion is better served at home, and they brought that money home. The next day, probably the same day, a group of money-hungry class-action lawyers would file a lawsuit, class-action on behalf of Apple's entire shareholder base, suing the company for reckless fiduciary behavior because they brought $80 billion of the company's capital home at a hit of 40%, $32 billion, down the toilet that didn't legally have to happen. And you can't make a case that it benefited the company, but you can make a case that it hurt the company, but it wasn't legally required. And the lawyers and the shareholders that are participated in the class would win that in a heartbeat. If Apple were a public benefit company, they may, ha they may have some more defense against that type of an activity. Or... More likely in a smaller corporation in Everything Corp with Jack Spirico as CFO and co-owner, I would have defense against John Pugliano and his other shareholders that I made this decision because it was a public benefit, which is the charter of our company. Even though it was damaging to the company in the short term, I personally believe it's the best thing in the long term, which is the same thing that anybody in any other corporation would say to defend themselves. But the public beneficiary corporation would have a little bit of an added ability. The other thing that it would do, it would remove the ability for people in the know to hide behind fiduciary responsibility, i.e. Monsanto and Anniston, Alabama. When questioned about that, their CEO said, I'm proud of what we did to protect our shareholders. We did what was legally right. He left out, in spite of the fact it was morally reprehensible, wrong, and killed people. But we weren't legally required to disclose the information. It certainly would have harmed the company, and it protected our shareholders, so we did the right thing. Legally, he's right. Morally, he's a piece of crap that should be buried in a hole in the ground. Actually, he should be coated with his own chemicals. That's what I think that would be justice. That's just my thoughts on that. Anyway, I found a legal briefing on this. There's a link in the show notes that you can take a look at. And what it says is understanding public benefit corporations and limiting risk as a fiduciary. Uh, it's pretty long. But the uptake is it may provide some moderate additional defense for fiduciaries in the company uh, in being able to act in the best interest of all versus just the best interest of the company. 
And there's some other ways to look at it that really aren't worth going into. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another one. This one I have is a question for Gary Collins on converting from vegetarian to meat eater. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method at PrimalPowerMethod.com, where I talk about all things primal, paleo, life simplification, my going-off-the-grid project, and where I sell my products, such as my going-off-the-grid book, which is doing very well. And I want to thank a lot of you for that. I've gotten good good responses, and I hope it helps you out. That's why I wrote it. Um, I have worked with a couple vegans and vegetarians over the years, and I've dealt with the conversion over. And it's not too tricky, but my advice would be take it slowly. What happens when you eliminate animal flesh from your diet that is obviously the muscle of the animal, primarily. I mean, most, almost all vegetarians don't eat even animal organs. They eat no animal, but just some eat. You know, there's uh, the the pescatarians, and oh, there's a bunch of different ones. I don't even want to get into it, but it's uh, basically by eliminating that, your body becomes accustomed to not having that animal flesh, like I said, primarily in the form of muscle and, and, and fat. But for the muscle you and the protein, you need to produce hydrochloric acid within your stomach. That's where protein is first broken down. What happens over time is they uh, vegetarians and vegans tend to eat more carbohydrates than, than usual. So what happens is you produce less and less hydrochloric acid, and over time, so that's why you'll hear uh, like a, a vegetarian or vegan will go and have a hamburger and they get really, really sick and don't feel good. And they go, that's why I don't eat meat. That's not the case. It's just they don't have the hydrochloric acid to break down that protein. So it actually the, – the meat will actually sit in their stomach and ferment and causes a whole host of just problems. And they just feel awful because basically they're poisoning themselves at that point. So go into it slowly. I would I would start with fish and chicken or poultry. It's the easiest to break down protein wise, as far as animal flesh wise. Um, and I'd integrate little bits, you know, small bits here and there, and build up over time and work yourself up to red meat. And you go, well, why would you do that? Well, red meat is the hardest uh, hardest to digest. For, for humans, and it's not that it's bad for you. It's just very dense and fibrous. It's, you know, the muscle is really, really strong in red meat usually. So it, it's just harder to break down. So that's what I would recommend. I would recommend just taking it slow and see see what you can tolerate, you know. Um, some people can't do red meat. They just can't. And, and if you've been a vegan or vegetarian for a long time, there's a chance that you may not be able to eat red meat or not very much of it. I'm just throwing that out there. But I hope that helps. Um, again, with all things in life, you know, take it slowly at first. See what happens. See what works. See what doesn't work. And what you what you can build up to. I know this person wants to specifically eat beef. But there's other things like elk, bison, deer, you know, moose. So there's all, you know, there's all kinds of other red meats, lamb that you can eat as well that might be better tolerated. So have an open mind. Thanks again, guys. All right. So, uh, good stuff from Gary Collins. I just say any major dietary change should be taken in stages. 
I know when I went paleo, coming out of a high-carb lifestyle, I felt like ass for two weeks. It probably saved my life. I was addicted to sugar. I mean, that's all it comes down to. And I was withdrawing from an addiction. In this case, it's more of you've lost the ability to digest something. But I think most vegetarians and vegans can convert over to meat if they want to fairly easily uh, within a couple weeks. But I agree, start with fish, chicken, small amounts, three, four ounces to a serving. Uh, and I, I, if you don't have any problems, keep progressing and, and find what works for you. And everybody should find a diet that works for them. Next question I have is for Jeff Lawton on sizing spillways uh, based on catchment and a lot of other things that are going on in this question. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, and I'm coming to you from the Dead Sea Valley in Jordan, 400 meters below sea level. And I have a question coming in here from Josh Reynolds. Josh Reynolds is actually a student of mine from one of my online courses, and um, he's um, asking a question here about level sill spillways. And um, Josh is a little bit confused, but anyway, let's sort that out. Um, he wants to know the uh, width of a level silf spillway in relation to catchment. And um, he realizes that um, the area of the catchment needs to be calculated. He has a hectare, 2.2 acres. And um, then uh, the maximum rain over that area in volume over 24 hours. And then that has to be divided by 24 to get an hourly rate and then divided by 60 to get a minute rate and then by 60 again to get a second rate. So 24 hour occurrence divided by 24 gives you an hourly rate, then divide that by 60 gives you a minute rate, by 60 again gives you a second rate. And then you've got something you can imagine. And Josh has done his calculations and he's worked out that he's able to release 0.058 of a cubic meter. Well, there's a thousand liters in a cubic meter, so 0.058 cubic meters per second is 58 liters a second. Now, what I normally do is I place a a bottle, a one liter bottle, down sideways, and say, right. That's one liter of water. Can I imagine that going over a spillway in one second? And it's about a hundred mil wide, 10 centimeters, 100 millimeters, which is four inches in the imperial scale. Now, if it were to go over four inches wide and it's a round bottle, right, one liter is about four, in, four inches high. But it's a round bottle, so it's actually about two inches, 50 centimeters depth. Now, if you lay them next to each other, 58 one-liter bottles, you, you end up with something that is 58 times 100. So 58 by, by 100 millimeters, at, at a maximum width is 0.58 of a meter. It's just over half a meter. Now, if you only want uh, less water going over your spillway, you can go twice as wide. So you go one meter, one meter wide plus 160 millimeters. So 1.16 will give you 
a 25 millimeter sheet of water. Now, if you go two meters wide, plus the double the 160 millimeters, so you've got 2.3, let's say. If you go a little bit more, go 2.5, you're going to come down to 10 millimeters of water. Now, every time you lengthen your level spill way, you have less height of flow going over the level surface. So if you only want one millimeter of water going over, you're going to end up with a spillway that's about five meters wide. You just calculate it like that. And remember, you're over-calculating this because you're, you're judging the catchment area as a sheet of glass. And it's not a sheet of glass. Well, I doubt it's a sheet of glass. It's not all solid rock, that's for sure. It's not all tarmac or concrete. We're, we're talking about soil and vegetation. So there's a certain amount of soakage as well. So you're calculating as if it's a sheet of glass. So you're overcompensating. It's quite okay. I'd say if you went down to... 25 millimeters that's one inch in a maximum 24 hour occurrence on your spillway and that's all you do is judge the length in relation to how many liters per second is going over allow a one liter bottle lying on its side across the level sill that's going downstream if you like across at right angles to the level sill gives you a rough eyeball calculation that that is going to be less than a hundred mil in depth. It's probably going to be more like fifty mil in depth in relation to how many fifty-eight bottles you'll leave lying next to each other. It gives you a general calculation that's overcompensating. No problem at all. Now you've also got a question here about freeboard and calculating the freeboard and the swale and saying that you've been told sometimes that swales should be sixty percent of the height should be the height of the water and then 40% is freeboard that that's okay what I normally calculate is about that about 60 to 70 percent full up the inside bank of the swale now if it's connected to a dam if it's connected to a pond what you call a pond in America right it's called a dam in Australia but a built wall earth structure we normally allow one meter, 3.3 yards, 39 inches, right? one meter of freeboard on the pond, on the dam. Now, if a swale connects to it with a level sill on it, we usually make sure the swale, the top of the swale is slightly lower than the dam, at least two or three inches, 50 to 75 millimeters at least lower in height and then you have your level sill. Because if ever there's a massive, massive irregular event and you get an enormous amount of water coming through, your dam will never fail because what will happen is the lowest point, no matter even the fractionally lowest point on the swell, will break because the level sill spillway won't be able to take this ridiculous water and you'll get a tiny little cut through the swale. Because the swales are uncompacted mounds, it becomes a release point there. 
And because it's not compacted, it doesn't cause a lot of damage. And it can be repaired with any material. It's not like a damn wall where you have to have a certain amount of clay that's compactable to rebuild and recompact your, your damn wall. The swale then becomes like the fuse in the electrical circuit. But this is a fuse in the water circuit. Water and electrics can be used as an analogy. They're very similar. So the swale is almost like the fuse. It's the point that you can allow to break because it's so easy to repair and the break will be so minimal because the pressure will go down so fast that it will be a narrow little slot, a little knife of a cut. So there you go. Um, what I've taught you in your, in your online course has been to overcompensate. Uh, you, you can overcompensate very easily and you'll never have any erosion, you'll never have any dams collapsing, you'll never have any problems. And if you do, by any chance, have a problem, the problem, the way we've described it to you, will be in the swale, and you can repair it with a shovel and a wheelbarrow. There you go. There's some complexity there. I'd kind of like to maybe help you a little bit understanding the last part of it where he's talking about the swale failing. Okay, so... I think one of the big problems that people have with swales is a swale, for those who might be new to the concept, is a level ditch. It's a ditch on contour. Let's say it's two meters wide and about a, a meter deep in the middle, or a couple yards by one yard deep. Um, and then there's the dirt is piled, non-compacted, as Jeff said, on the downhill side. So it's like a level path ditch with the dirt on the downhill side. The, the ditch fills up, and the, the sill... There is no mound of dirt in front of it. The sill is where the water gets out. It's your spillway where when you exceed the capacity, the water flows over. But that sill is set slightly lower than the top of the ditch itself. What we'll do is maybe leave a two meter or two yards, six feet, all right, opening. And then we'll compact the ground there a little bit. So it's a couple millimeters lower so that the water naturally flows out of there and sheets, like Jeff said, a couple millimeters high out of that escape point. The, the mound, when it's properly done, should serve little to no role whatsoever in holding back the water because if it did, the water would run around both ends. Now, one end might spill into a pond to fill it, but assume there's no pond. Think about it. If the, if the berm was holding the water, when the water exceeded the capacity of the swale, it would run out both sides and around the ends and erode the ends. Now, I actually built swales with one end compacted down a little bit, or we go ahead and take it off contour a little bit right at the end, be a little bit lower on that end. I'm talking less than an inch, but that's enough where if the sill can't handle it, the side acts as a sill as well. And that works. But what Jeff's saying is, should we get that one in a hundred year, hundred year flood rain and it exceed everything that we've done? It won't blow out, you know, uh, 500 yards of swale, all the mound at once, boom. It's going to find the weakest point in the uncompacted mound. It's going to cut a hole through it. And it'll start eating it, just like a dam looks like when it's eating. Eat, eat, eat. And as, as that gets bigger, it effectively becomes a second spillway. Because it's going to erode right down to the, the surface. It's not going to cut below the surface. It's going to cut down to the top of the ditch, which is where your other spillway is. And it'll widen to the point that the pressure drops 
because the overflow drops. And that overflow will drop until basically it's like if it opens up seven feet, now you have two two-meter sills instead of one. And if there's a tree there, it'll take it out or whatever. It's probably going to have more than there isn't one, by the way. But when you want to fix it, it's really not about holding the water in again because the water almost never gets up that high. It's about you want to plant things in it. So any dirt, any material could fill that hole back up and be replanted. And if it was a 100-year flood event, you probably, not definitely Houston, have a 100 years before it happens again. So that's what he's talking about there at the end. It becomes a pressure release valve, if that makes sense. Next up, we have a question for Stephen Harris on battery banks and Tupperware rolling around in SUVs. If you're expecting a Harris rant, sort of, kind of, but not really. Hi, this is Steve Harris. I have a quick question here about battery banks. And since it's on one of my favorite subjects, I decided to, hey, let's get this one out there. A guy wrote to me and Jack and said, I own a 2014 GMC Terrain SUV. Okay? So right away, it's an SUV. It's not a pickup truck. And I want to have two batteries in a bank in the back area behind the seats. I'm thinking of putting the two batteries into a Rubbermaid-type tub to keep them from moving around. I have listened to your show on battery banks and now have a battery bank in my house. Congratulations, buddy. Way to go. Everyone should have one. Oh, if you want to know how to make one for free, go listen to Jack and I on battery123.4.com. So anyways, I know that you've said many times that the amount of gases that come from the batteries released is only equivalent to a mouse fart. However, my concern is that even with holes drilled in the tub for cables, there will be any concern having the batteries inside the vehicle. So he's concerned about the gases building up inside the tub, inside the vehicle. And he says, it's, you know, is this mouse fart a problem inside of the barrier, um, inside the tub? You, <laughs> the thing you have to understand, Hydrogen is one-fourteenth the density of air. One-fourteenth. So hydrogen is going to want to instantaneously, if you make a some hydrogen the size of a golf ball, that hydrogen is going to want to leave and expand over the entire face of the earth. And it's roughly going to do this at about the speed at which you can throw a tennis ball across the room. Meters per second, hydrogen will be expanding out, going through every hole, every nook and crevice, you know, and then out every hole in the vehicle, and then trying to expand across the entire planet. You can literally have a molecule of hydrogen that came off of your battery charging over China. I mean, do you really see what I'm talking about now when I'm talking about there is no danger from a hydrogen explosion with a battery because the hydrogen wants to leave so quickly? Now, if you do have, let's say, battery caps and battery tops on the cell and hydrogen builds up there and there's this little itty bitty you know, bit of hydrogen coming out of 
the cap on the battery and you happen to put on a cable at the right time and it sparks and one of those sparks goes flying right by that little exit in the hole of the battery cover which is basically keeping everything contained you got the ability to ignite the hydrogen and oxygen in the battery and to blow the covers off and blow acid up and everything that is where you can get into an issue with a battery however if you put terminals on your battery first and you clamp them down and you're not making sparks and no spark is going to fly literally within one millimeter of that cap, you are absolutely fine. Talking about gases coming out of the battery and going into a tote that has holes in it for battery uh, cables going in and out, forget it. It is going out like <laughs> hydrogen does not waft around like a fart, okay? Imagine being in your house and in the basement and fart and farting in the basement. If your fart was hydrogen and then that hydrogen stunk for some reason, the person in the second floor of the house within about three seconds would say, what stinks? That is the type of speed I'm talking about of what how fast hydrogen escapes. So, he goes on as the will there, will there be any concerns having the batteries inside the vehicle? Any suggestions on how to do this as safely as possible? It would really be appreciated. Also, since there will be uh, uh, wiring inside the vehicle, what gauge wire should I run to keep them charged when the vehicle is running? For the time being, I will probably just use a smart charger and keep them topped off. Okay, here is the great big Stephen Harris problem. I will never, ever, ever advocate for the continuous storage of batteries and anything but a toolbox in the back of a pickup truck. I will not help you, talk to you, assist you in any way, shape, or form of having batteries inside the vehicle on a 24-7 basis. Notice I'm saying on a 24-7 basis. If you put batteries in the back of your vehicle, I don't care how you tie them down, what tote you put them in, what you do, you guys have no concept of the amount of energy there is in a vehicle crash. As I've said before, I was a vehicle engineer for Chrysler. I saw all the crash footage that you never got to see. And the amount of energy in just a 50G crash, 50 times the force of gravity, which is a survivable crash if you're wearing seatbelts. The amount of energy released is horrendous. It's cataclysmic. It's like a Cat 5 hurricane amount of energy being instantaneously released. If you have batteries in the back of your vehicle and you get into an accident, they will fly forward. They will go right through your headrest. They will take your head off and they will fly with your head through the windshield and several hundred feet down the road with your de decapitated head. That is what will happen with a battery inside of your vehicle. It is deadly. Now, I said on a 24-7 basis, if you are bugging out 
if you have an emergency, you are okay to put batteries, car batteries, marine batteries, golf cart batteries in the back of your vehicle, even untied down for that event and that emergency. Because the chances of you having an accident when you're bugging out are really small and you really need the batteries. If you have the batteries in your vehicle 24-7, the chances of you having an accident are actually pretty high, and thus your danger factor goes up. So while I am extremely forceful and bitchy and I just, you know, rant to you about don't you ever put a vehicle, a battery in a vehicle, and drive around in it because of that danger. I want to tell you when you can have it, and that is when you're bugging out. Now, keeping them charged in the back of the vehicle while you're bugging out. Your uh, cigarette lighter can only put out about 10 to 15 amps, okay? So if you want to keep the batteries in the back of the vehicle charged, I mean, running thick cables up to the alternator and everything else, let's say you had two... Uh, marine batteries in the back of your SUV. I would connect them together, and I got cables to do that on battery1234.com. They're on Amazon. Don't make them. Just buy them. It's cheaper and quicker. And then I would get a 10-amp battery charger uh, designed for solar panels. And what I would do is I'd put that charger on the batteries, then I'll run the input wire to that up to the cigarette lighter plug that goes into the cigarette lighter or the power hole adapter. That will top off and keep your batteries charged simply and easily without you having to go all the way to the alternator. And let's say uh, you bugged out and you're at a camping ground 100 miles away from the disaster. And you run your two batteries down in the back of your truck and you need to, back of your SUV, and you need to charge them up. I would uh, disconnect them from each other, pick them up one by one, go put them by your front tire, by the battery of the car, connect them both up, take a big pair of jumper cables, put the jumper cables on the marine batteries, put the jumper cables on the car battery, start the car up, idle it at 1,500 RPMs for about 10 minutes and let it sit there for about another 10, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, just on on idle. Let the car, through the jumper cables, recharge those lead-acid batteries. Because the lead-acid batteries will say, give me more, give me more, give me more. They love to take in a lot of current during the first 80% of their charge. The next 20% of the 80%, they like to take it in at a slower rate. But you can do what's called bulk charging. Let's say you're going from 15 to 80, 85%. You can do those with jumper cables, with the car revved up, dumping energy into those batteries that you can then now go use uh, in your campsite, in your bug out location, in your cabin, in your camper that you recharge off the vehicles. So since we all love battery banks, and people have been asking this question, and I've been bitchy at them before it, I wanted to articulate to you the exception to my bitchiness and let you know when you can have batteries in your SUV and when you shouldn't have your batteries in your SUV. 
And I'm not kidding about them flying forward and taking your head off, okay? There are people in this world who had unsecured spare tires in their trunks and got into accidents, and the spare tire would fly through the back seat, fly through the headrest, literally decapitate them and take their head right out the front of the window. You guys have no concept. I mean, it's like, it's like me talking to you about Pluto. You have no concept of Pluto and what it's like. You have no concept of the amount of energy released in a crash. It is beyond horrendous. I hope this helps you out and clears things up for you about when and when to not have a battery bank in a vehicle. Thank you so much. You can find all my stuff with Jack at Stephen1234.com. Great question. Send in some more, even if you think I'll be bitchy. Send in some more, and I promise I will take care of you in a polite and professional manner. Thank you. Okay, great stuff from Stephen Harris. Nothing to add on that one. My question here is from Tyler. And Tyler says, what are your chicken, quail, and duck handling and hygiene procedures? Would they change if you were using the eggs only for personal consumption? Do you wash and refrigerate eggs as soon as they're collected? The CDC released an article in August about the trend of people raising chickens in their backyards. The CDC claims they've seen a spike in cases of salmonella as a direct result of this increase. I believe I've read or heard this article at least once before on TSP or in print, but wasn't able to find it in the TSP archives. That's because I did not cover this particular article. I agree people can contract salmonella from raising their own animals, and this article highlights some decent guidelines on how to prevent it. However, it seems like the CDC is out to demonize growing trend of people raising their own food and increasing their personal freedom. I agree with that assessment. Overall, it's pretty good advice. If you read it, you'll see there's a lot more concern about if you're handling birds and things that they've crapped on, washing your hands, um, if you're walking around a coop or something like that, taking your shoes off and not walking around your house with it, these are good guidelines. And I agree with them. But then, of course, they always come back to the eggs and, you know, how did the eggs have to be refrigerated and on and on and on. First of all, refrigeration won't get rid of salmonella. You can have something contaminated with salmonella. You can put it in a refrigerator and it will still be contaminated with salmonella. It'll slow down the growth rate of salmonella because almost all bacteria slow down in colder temperatures but it won't get rid of it if it's already there okay the next is they're they do say to throw away cracked eggs well i i will not sell a cracked egg i will not do it i will not do it i will not do it because it does present a higher level of risk um it, it ain't that great a risk it depends on what you do with that egg the reason i won't sell it is that cracked egg, in my opinion, should not be cooked any way other than fully cooked through or hard-boiled or something like that. It should not be cooked, like, over easy. Because that, or, you know, like a, a one-minute egg or something like that, or use any kind of a rock. But certainly shouldn't be used for the production of something like mayonnaise. Even though the acid in mayonnaise is probably going to take care of the problem, why risk it? We have eggs that aren't cracked. There is no such thing as an egg that has salmonella inside the egg unless something puts it there. The way salmonella gets into the egg is through cracks or through removal of what's called the blem. The blem is a protective coating 
that God and the chicken and the duck and the quail and all the other birds came up with together that coats the egg so that things can't get into the egg, but the egg can breathe and things can, air can get out of the egg. Right? So there's a, a permeable exchange, but yet bacteria and viruses can't get into the egg unless it's cracked or somehow compromised or washed off. The CDC says not to wash eggs. Okay, the CDC can, in the words of Dwight from Dodgeball, cram it up their cram hole. Okay, because it's not practical in a commercial operation doing free range, especially ducks, to take that approach. Because the customer will not accept an egg that's got mud and, and dirt and maybe feces on it. What they say is the cold water can cause the egg, as you're removing the blem, to pull some stuff in through the now permeable shell because you've removed the blem. They are not wrong. However, the only reason this happens is because of movement from an area that's cold to an area that's warm. If what you use to wash the egg is warmer than the egg, if any movement happens, it will be outward instead of inward. So, long way of getting to this. How do we handle our duck eggs? Our duck eggs are handled as follows. We bring them in. I, my wife, or our farmhand looks at them. If they are clean in appearance, they are not washed. They go right into a carton based on their size. We cannot sell graded eggs. Grade A, grade B, grade C, etc. It's illegal at a home-scale production. What we can do, though, is say, this is our, our quality assurance, so we have two classifications of eggs. Eggs and mini-eggs. Anything that's too small for us to sell as an egg goes into a carton marked mini. We sell them for six versus eight dollars a dozen. And my wife just took, uh, I think five dozen of those and 20 dozen of regulars to one of our stores today, uh, for instance. And they, they market them that way as mini eggs too. And that's okay. If it looks like it's got dirt on it, feces on it, mud on it, and ducks are going to have more of this than chickens, then we wash the eggs with hot water. Generally, that's just done by hand with rubbing, but hot tap water, and our tap water comes out about 120 degrees. There's no way that egg's 120 degrees inside, and there's no way that we're going to create a flow into the egg doing that, and we've been doing it for about four years now. No problems, no concerns, nowhere. Those eggs are dried. Every single one of them is candled. They go into a carton. The candling checks for two things, three really. Is it just a bad egg? Sometimes you'll find, you'll find one in a thousand. Uh, is there blood spots in the yolk? This is not a horrible thing, but you don't want a customer getting it. Okay? And if you're doing scrambled eggs and you drop one bloody egg yolk into five you've already dropped in the bowl, it's kind of annoying. Yeah, it, it doesn't look good. Right? So even when I'm cracking them, if I'm going to make a bunch of scrambled eggs, if they're ones that were set aside for me so I know they might not have been candled, I'll crack it and drop it in one bowl and into another. Crack it and just because it's annoying if you if you get it other way around. Um, so we check for blood spots in the yolks. We check for a bad egg, and we check for cracks. We do not want to sell any of those things. This is primarily for the customer's experience. I don't want the customer to come back and say, hey, you know, I got a bloody yolk last time. They go, well, we'll give you a couple extra eggs to be the way that I want them to never have that experience. I want to, so it's a customer experience thing. It's not a horrible thing, but what if I, that guy bought two dozen eggs? He was down to his last four, and it bothers him, 
and he drops a bloody egg yolk into his other three eggs. He's pissed off, so that's why we do that. The main reason we wash them is in our interactions with our customer, it is less work to wash the eggs than to leave them unwashed and have to explain the appearance. And this is what we found that everybody else in our business that does it successfully does. And I don't believe it poses any health risk whatsoever. Again, we wash with hot tap water. I'm talking we turn the hot water. For some of you with your water heater up higher, you might have to back it down a little bit. We're, we're talking water 125, 130 degrees. And it's not going to cook the egg. It takes everything off of the egg. And we put them away. Personal use. Unless they're completely covered in shit, we just throw them in a cart and throw them in the refrigerator. That's it. Refrigeration. Yeah, but not really necessary. When I was a kid, we had one goose, a couple ducks, half dozen chickens. All girls. No roosters, no drakes. My grandmother was like, those go in the stew pot. Right? If we come across one, it gets stewed. They eat and they don't produce anything. We kept birds for food. And none of those eggs, unless we ended up with a surplus for some reason with our household, we generally didn't, ever went in the refrigerator and took up valuable refrigerator space, in my grandmother's words. They were set in a bowl on the table. Winter, summer, spring, fall. And she said, if it's a bad egg, you'll know it when you crack it. And she was right. Refrigeration is a good practice, large-scale, even small-scale commercial. By law, we're required within a certain amount of time from the time the egg is collected to get it under refrigeration. But the belief that an unwashed egg needs to be refrigerated is preposterous, and I'll explain to you why. I can take and collect eggs from my birds every day for 10 to 12 days and then take all of those eggs and put them in an incubator on the same day and they will all hatch about the same time. Or I can put them under a broody bird and they'll all hatch about the same time. The concept that an egg sitting on a table for 10 days would be unsafe to eat yet still be a viable embryo that we begin its gestation process at the same time as one just laid when subjected to the right temperatures is asinine. Got it? It's ridiculous. If that egg was bad, I couldn't throw an incubator and was it 22 days later, have a chicken pop out of it. It's, it's just stupid on its face. And it can't be developing where it wouldn't hatch within a couple hours of the egg that popped out of the chicken's ass but went in the incubator at the same minute. Got it? Okay. So that's, that's the ducks. Chickens. When we had chickens, we almost never washed them. The chickens are much better about laying in a box. It's an extra step. It takes time. Time equals money. We don't want to do it. We do it because the customer expects it, and we can understand the customer expecting it because of the appearance of some of the eggs laid outside of a nesting box by ducks. Got it? Okay. Now, chicken egg looked bad. Generally, we washed those, and those became my eggs. The chicken egg market wasn't that great for us, so we went all ducks, so chicken eggs are now moot, but that's what we did. Quail eggs. They live in the aviary. They seldom have any kind of detritus on them whatsoever. They're collected. They're put in those 15 packs. We have these little uh, clear plastic 15 packs. Pick them up, put them in there. They trifold over. The first one goes. We put a business card to label them uh, with our contact information required by law. The other one folds over. They see right through. It looks very professional. That's all we do with the quail eggs. 
if a quail egg has a little poo on it or something, we'll wash it and it goes away from me. The, the, here's the issue with quail eggs. And this is going to sound a little gross, but I think it's actually fecal matter that hardens. If you've ever looked at quail eggs, uh, Courtney's quail eggs anyway, they look, look like they're a camouflage pattern, which is probably an evolutionary adaptation. They're harder to see. Um, they have like this mottled, almost like uh, candy egg appearance to them. It's a very thin thing that does that. If you get a dirty quail egg, and it's anything other than like just like knock it off with like a, a green scrubby, and like if you have a mildly dirty egg, it just has a little bit of stuff on it you don't like, you don't have to wash it. One of those little green scrubber pads that's never been used to wash anything, by the way. Just the abrasion, take it right off. And we do that too. If it doesn't need to go underwater, it doesn't go underwater. It's faster, it's cleaner, it's easier. But you, if you if you take that and hit it with it, you can kind of get it off, but it'll probably leave a white spot. It'll take it off. If you if you get them wet at all and do a conventional wash, you can take a quail egg and wash it white with your fingers. So if it's just got some poo stuck to it or whatever, we wash it and it's an egg for me because it doesn't look right in the package. Um, most of the time for commercial quail egg production, it's not a problem because they sit in rack systems. And the eggs roll forward into a catchment system, and they have no chance to get anything on them. When you free-range birds, that changes. And it does present some challenges, but I believe the product is healthier, the animal's healthier, everybody's happier, and the risks are easily mitigated. So that's how we handle that. If you have any further questions on our handling of our, our eggs, I, I'd love to hear them. Um, I think that's about as clear as I can get, though. Uh, audio wise and I think we've done some videos I'll see if I can dig one up but uh, maybe we should like I, actually I'll tell you what uh, Justin Rhodes is going to be here the day before Thanksgiving and he'll probably document that I would I would imagine he, he would now whether or not he'll use that in his final document documentary that he's producing or just stick more to the high level of what we're doing I don't know but if he documents that he'll probably put out his YouTube channel it'll be very well done and we'll let you know if that happens anyway with that Uh, let's talk about the T-SPAS item of the day. Guys, remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping where? T-SPAS.com. All you got to do is go T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there, do your online shopping, help support the Survival Podcast. How much does it cost you? No extra money. Buy stuff you're going to buy anyway. Shop through T-SPAS. Help the Survival Podcast. Check out our Amazon reviews while you're there, though. Okay. And an Amazon review that you can check out that we think is a great one for today. Yesterday, I had a question on chainsaws. And I mentioned the Oregon Power Now cordless chainsaw. And I didn't, I, I, maybe I did. I don't think I mentioned the corded Oregon chainsaw. These are electric chainsaws with a self-sharpening feature. They have a little lever. You pull up on it. You push a button. Sparks fly out. Blades razor sharp again. This means if you're doing, you know, you're, you're up on a ladder and you're cutting limbs off a tree and it seems like it's dull, as long as it's not because the chain's loose, bzzz, okay, sharp, right through. Pretty badass. Um, the cordless one is great for what it is. I have a video. What I want you to understand, if you've not seen the video before, I cut two pieces off this piece of oak. And it seems like these saws might be a bit underpowered. I have a tendency to show you the worst-case scenario of things, because I believe that's the most honest way to be. That way you'll be happy with my recommendations. This is a piece of, uh, of uh, live oak that's probably about two and a half years old. I don't know if you've ever dealt with post oak and live oak, but they're about the same. 
I don't know that there's a wood that's harder. Maybe black locust. Maybe as it seasons. Now these saws cut through live live oak, green live oak, like butter. Me right through. Not to the same level as a gas saw, but I basically was cutting stone to show you that the saw worked. And I, I still need to do a follow-up video where I cut some more uh, wood typical of what you'd be cutting so you can see them. But when I mentioned that, somebody commented yesterday, the plug-in version of that saw, which is like 137 bucks or 127 bucks, which I think is a deal. I think it's an incredible backup for a chainsaw. You know, you need an extension cord for this one. It's an 18-inch bar, same self-sharpening feature. And what I love about both of them, You know the number one reason your chainsaw stops cutting well? Chain gets loose. Before it's dull, it gets loose. And you have to take a wrench and you loosen the cover and then you take a screwdriver. Or you got that wrench with the screwdriver on it. You tension the chain up and then you set it on a log and you push down and you tighten it back up, right? Uh, these have two little dials. You loosen one, tighten the other, tighten the other one back up and the chain's back to tension. So it has that too. But there's an instant coupon right now on it for 20 bucks off. Which means you can get it for a hundred and seven dollars. The bad news. The bad news is there's only two left in stock. There was eighteen when I put it out this morning on the blog. I just pulled it up. So there's two left in stock. Um, don't know how that's going to work out when they run out. If they're going to take back orders or anything on it. Um, but it's a great, great tool. Uh, they now have it down to a hundred and twenty-three dollars with twenty-dollar extra saving coupon. But two of them left. Uh, it'd be a good time to pick this up, and I'll keep an eye on it for you guys and uh, bring it back around when it's available again. Wow, I didn't 16 of them sold between the time I posted, and now it's, that's pretty awesome. So you may not be able to get one of these, but remember, as long as you uh, do your online shopping through T-SPAS and, and cruise on over to all the sites you shop at through there, um, you'll help support the Survival Podcast and the work we do when you're There, just click on the one link to see all of the deals of the day on Amazon. And, and from there, no matter what you buy, you help us out. Uh, but definitely check out our reviews. And uh, the Oregon saws are just a great tool, in my opinion. I'm going to be doing some more stuff with them as we go into our winter, as I have some downtime and actually have time to get some shit done around here. And I'll be documenting more of that. I think there's a lot of questions about chainsaws. And uh, based on some of the work I did in the past, I think I can be helpful with it. And with that, it is time for our song of the day today. Our song of the day today is by a band that I like okay, but they're not a band I ever really followed or, or really liked a lot of their music. But I always liked this song. It's the Logical Song by Supertramp. Came off their album Breakfast in America, released in 1979. So it's for old people like me. But you young guys might like it too. In fact, I think this song might be more important to today's generation than the generation it was written for. Let me read the following to you off of Song Facts. The lyrics are about how the innocence and wonder of childhood can quickly give way to worry and cynicism as children are taught to be responsible adults. It makes the point that logic can restrict creativity and passion. Supertramp keyboard player Roger Hogson, who wrote this song and sang the lead vocals, said in our 2012 interview, I think it was very relevant when I wrote it, and I think it's actually more relevant today. It's basically saying that what they teach us in schools is all very fine, but what about what they don't teach us in schools that creates so much confusion in our being? I mean, they don't really prepare us for life in terms of teaching us who we are on the inside. They teach us how to function on the outside, to be very intellectual, but they don't tell us how to act with our intuition or our heart. 
and really give us a plausible explanation of what life is all about. There's a huge hole in education. I remember leaving school at 19. I was totally confused. The song really came out of my confusion, which came down to a basic question. Please tell me who I am. I felt very lost. I had to educate myself in that way. And that's why California was very good for me to kind of re-educate myself, if you like. But it's interesting that that song, I hear it all the time, it's quoted in schools so much, I've been told it's the most quoted song in schools. That may be because it is, has so many words in it that people like to smell, but I don't think it all, po it, it also, I think it also poses, uh, that question and maybe stimulates something with students. I hope so. Anyway, um, so I'm going to tell you something that I, I've begun to understand about myself over the years and maybe being too hard on people. This young kid that works for me, I use him as an example because he's real world, really here and here right now. This guy, Cody, that works for me, he gets so closed up whenever you tell him he did something wrong. And I'm talking about like, hey, you, you put the eggs in the carton marked mini, and those are clearly not mini eggs. Just move them to another carton. Oh, and he's like frazzled. And one of the reasons I hired this kid is he's a varsity tennis player in high school. He's now playing tennis competitively in college. And I figured if you're going to play at that level, you have to have a coach. It's like, hey, you turned your backhand in too much or whatever tennis guys say. I don't know. But, I mean, you have to be able to take correction without falling in on yourself. And what I've realized is it's not just this generation. It does go back to 79 and earlier. Schools teach us that there is a right answer and a wrong answer to things, period. And for some things, that's good because it's true. And the concept that, well, two plus two might not be four is bullshit. Okay, and we can get into particle physics and stuff where things break down. But at the basic level, two and two is four. There's a right answer. Good. You should learn that. But when everything is taught from that viewpoint and the ultimate authority is the teacher, and no matter how good your case is, you're wrong if the teacher says you're wrong. And you enter that system at four to five years ago, four to five years of age with pre-K and you deal with 13, 14 years of that shit. And you are the average person. I believe you are mentally programmed to think that way. Binary. On, off, right, wrong. Yes, no. And to think, someone must validate me. Somebody must tell me I'm right. So what I've begun to ask myself is, why not you, Jack? Now, I have a fairly high IQ. I don't state it in public because it pisses people off, honestly. Sometimes That's not true. You would be a scientist. Maybe I don't want to be a scientist. Anyway. Uh, so I'm smart, but I'm like, that's not, that's not what it is. I know people way smarter than me that act like this. What was it? I didn't give a shit, and I lacked confidence in their authority. I always questioned their authority, and I always believed that it was possible that they were wrong. And even when I did the right thing, according to them, to get the right grade, I did it because I chose to do it, not because I needed it. I didn't believe in them. And that left me with no choice but to believe in myself. And when you believe in yourself, you get to positions where you go, best guess I can make right now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. And you, but you're, you're, you're also, when you do that, you have some humility that could be wrong, doing it anyway. Best thing I can do right now. But because of that humility, you're like, if I figure it out it's wrong, I'm going to make another decision. I, 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 last year, I had a problem with ducks dying on me with this last brood that we came through with. 
I think it was this, this spring. Lost a lot of them. And Nick Ferguson came out for the, the spring workshop. He's like, well, what are you doing with them? I'm like, I'm doing, I don't remember what it was. But it was something like, it radically changed things. And he's like, well, what's up? I said, well, this is how many I've lost. He's like, holy crap. And I'm like, well, when you're losing animals and you can't figure out why, do something different. And he's like, exactly. How many people can't do that? They keep asking for someone to fix it or tell them what to add to what they're doing. Instead of like, okay, this isn't working. Let's just change it. And, and I don't think that applies to just ducks. I think that applies to all things in life. And I think we've reached a point where, yes, it was a problem in the 70s. Yes, it was a problem in the 80s and the 90s. But I think today, the young people we're turning out today, through no fault of their own, are more mired in this crap than any time in history. And that's not logical. The case that's made by authority is this is logical. We teach right and wrong. We teach yes and no. We teach two and two. We teach common core math. And they get prepared, and then they go to college, and then they get a good job, and it's all bullshit. It's all lies. For every person you can show me that went to college and got a great job, I'll show you one mired in collegiate debt. They can't pay it. This is working at Starbucks. And they're not a bad person. That's not why they're there. Maybe they have a degree in gender studies. I don't know. But I can pro they probably don't have a degree in some, some sort of a STEM field right now because all of those people that have a degree in decent grades can get a decent job. Unless they decide it all of a sudden and by the time I get to the end of it, I hate it. I have, I have a friend whose ex-wife has a degree in architecture. She's, last I heard, she was designing closets. She decided she hated architecture after getting through it all. This, this concept that we shouldn't be led both by logic and our intuition and emotion is insane. One of the things Star Trek was trying to teach us with Mr. Spock, that's why he was half human, guys. Emotion and intuition devoid of logic is foolishness. Logic devoid of intuition Logic devoid of our intuition and our emotion and our instincts is also foolishness. Because there's a reason we have those things. There is a part of the human animal that we've tried to bury because we don't understand it, we can't explain it, we can't necessarily measure it with science But it's real. And if you try to reproduce it in a lab, you probably won't be able to. Because it's fake. And it only works where things are real and where the mind knows it's real. Case in point, my recent hunting trip. I told you guys about it. I was watching turkeys in the scope of my rifle because I was bored. I didn't think I was going to see a deer. It was getting close to dark. Turkeys were about 250 yards out in the field. And all of a sudden, the hair on the back of my neck stands up. And I know something's looking at me. And I come off the scope and turn my eye just to the right, and there's a deer standing there, busted, stone cold. She's 50 yards away. She knows something's up. And when I bring my eye off that scope, she catches my eye. She runs. I drop the gun and make the shot. But making the shot's not what I'm talking about. How did I know that? And you can say, oh, it was coincidence. Oh, you just felt like that, and it happened to be... Bullshit. Bullshit. If you're a bow hunter, you know this feeling better than anybody. You're up in the tree. It's been quiet for hours. 
you've basically been fulfilling the job of armed bird watcher. That's what bow hunting. Somebody said that on Facebook. I'm like, that's exactly what it is. You have birds everywhere, and you're there with a bow, right? And you're almost ready to give up. There's no sound. There's no smell. There's no scent. And the arms tingle. The hair stands up. There's a deer here. Not there's something here. You're dialed in on your prey as a predator. And next thing you know, a little movement, a broken twig, a slight sound. Damn, if there wasn't a deer here all along. There he is. And someone will say, well, you heard a rustle of leaves. You just didn't know it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You haven't experienced this, so you don't understand it. You're trying to explain it away with logic. Because it's scary to think that there's this entire dimension of us that's so much deeper. That applies to everything. That applies to you. Walk up to the door of your house, and everything looks secure, but your gut says... No. That applies to my wife when she was married to her prior husband, who he wanted to park the truck at a certain parking spot, way away from everything. And she said, I don't feel good about this. And he wouldn't listen to her. And while they were in the store, it got stole. Because her gut said, this is not today. Any other day, fine. Not today. Not right now. We have that. And when we get cut off from that, you want to know why people behave like they're inhuman? Because they are behaving exactly the way they've been programmed to. Logic is so damned important. But intuition, experience, instinct, gut, all of that is just as important. And we can't let go of it. That's what this song means for me. In the words of Albert Einstein, the intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And the rational, rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honors the servant and has forgotten the gift. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.